13th century Persian poet, Islamic scholar, and Sufi mystic, was once asked by one of his students, what is poison? He replied with a beautiful answer, anything which is more than our necessity is poison. It may be power, wealth, hunger, ego, greed, laziness, love, ambition, hate, or anything. What is fear? Non-acceptance of uncertainty. If we accept that uncertainty, it becomes adventure. What is envy? Non-acceptance of good in others. If we accept that good, it becomes inspiration. What is anger? Non-acceptance of things which are beyond our control. If we accept, it becomes tolerance. What is hatred? Non-acceptance of a person as they are. If we accept a person unconditionally, it becomes love. Welcome to the Fabled Remedies Podcast number four, Animal Entheogens, Ordeal Poisons, the Mongolian Death Worm, and Talismanic Protections. Wow. That's a cool title, I gotta say. <laughs> As always, we invite you to join us on a silly and sacred journey into the mysterious. Our goal at Fabled Remedies is to create a safe community to explore far-out ideas and celebrate the wisdom in the weird. My name is Grizzly, and with me is always the love of my life and my fellow fabulist, Lucy. Hello, hello. We have another fantastic show for you all today, but first we ask if you enjoy what we do and want to support our little family on the Fabled Farm, to please go over to fabledremedies.com and check out what we do. Follow, like, and share our podcast with the people that you love and help our community grow and blossom into a fun and safe place to share and explore this mystical situation we find ourselves in. To kick off this episode, I'm going to read the Choctaw legend of how poison came into the world. This is from the firstpeople.us, and the Choctaw are a Native American people originally based in the southeastern woodlands in what is now Alabama and Mississippi. The legend reads, A very long time ago, when the world was new, there was a certain plant that grew in the shallow waters of the bayous. It grew in the place where the Choctaw people went to bathe or swim. This plant was a vine and was very poisonous. Whenever the people touched this vine, they would get very sick and would die. This vine liked the Choctaw people though, and it felt sorry for them. It didn't want to cause them so much pain and sorrow, but it couldn't show itself to them because it grew beneath the surface of the bayou. So it decided to give away its poison it called all of the chiefs of the small people of the swamps, the wasps, bees, and snakes. It told them that it wanted to give away its poison. These small chiefs held a council about the vine's offer. They had no poison and were often stepped on by the others. They agreed to share the poison. Bee spoke first. I will take a small part of your poison, he said. I will only use it to defend my hive. I will warn people away before I poison them. And even if I shall have to use my poison, it will kill me to do so. Therefore, I will use it very carefully. Then Wasp spoke next. I will take a small part of your poison also, he said. Then I will be able to protect my nest. But I will warn people by buzzing close to them before I poison them. I will keep my poison in my tail. Next, Water Moccasin spoke. I will take some of your poison. I will use it only if people step on me. I will hold it in my mouth, and when I open my mouth, people will see how wide it is, and they will know to stay away from me. Rattlesnake spoke last. I will take a good bit of your poison, he said. I will take all that is left, and I will hold it in my mouth too. But before I strike someone, I will use my tail to warn them. Intisha, 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 intisha. That is the sound that I will make 
to let them know that I am close. So it is done. The vine gave up its poison to the bees, wasp, water moccasin, and the rattlesnake. Now the shallow waters of the bayou were safe for the Choctaw people, where once that vine had poison, now it had small flowers. From then on, only those who were foolish and did not listen to the warnings of the small ones who took the vine's poison were hurt. Nice. And that was the legend of how poison came into the world by the Choctaw people. Now I'm going to hand it over to Lucy and she's going to take you on a ride down the road of animal entheogens. So for those not familiar with the term, entheogens are psychoactive substances that induce alterations in perception, mood, consciousness, cognition, or behavior for the purposes of engendering spiritual development or otherwise in certain sacred contexts. Anthropological study has established that entheogens are used for religious, magical, shamanic, or spiritual purposes in many parts of the world. And today we are kind of on the theme of poisons. And so one thing that I wanted to talk about are some really interesting medicines that I've learned about, which are actually considered poisons. One thing that I think is interesting about several of these entheogens is that they have very interesting origin stories where it talks about the people who were native to that area almost being called by some divine aspect of whether it was, you know, the forest or whatever environment they may find themselves in and being instructed through certain shamanic states to utilize different materials in unique ways. And combo is one of those stories. So I'm just going to go ahead and introduce the legend of combo and then I will explain a little bit more about uh, what that medicine use looks like today. This is from Island Combo. The Legend of Combo. Legend has it that once upon a time, the Kashinawa tribe of the Upper Amazon were struck down by a mysterious disease that defied all of their known remedies. At night, surrounded by groaning and grieving, the elders gathered around the fire, trying to work out what was happening. Perhaps they had been cursed by a rival tribe. Perhaps it was something the Spaniards had brought into the forest. A dire fate, even extinction, beckoned. At this realization, Pahe Kampu, one of the tribe's older shamans, decided to venture deep into the forest on a vision quest. In a remote spot, far from everyone and everything, he cooked a potent brew of ayahuasca and drank it at sunset. That night, in answer to his prayers, the queen of the forest appeared in his vision. Beckoning him to the trunk of an enormous tree, she flicked her eyes upwards. Old Pahe Kampu followed her gaze. Something was moving up there among the leaves. You can imagine Pahe Kampu's surprise and relief when a bright green frog climbed down onto his shoulder. With no claws or teeth, Pahe Kampu wondered how this harmless creature could help him. Don't be deceived, said the queen, reading his thoughts. This amiable little fellow is a prince of the forest. No one ever bothers him, not even the great anaconda, such a mama. Is he poisonous, said Pahe Kampu? Yes, but as you know, the poisons of the forest are medicines if you know how to use them. And without further ado, the queen showed Pahe Kampu how to work with the frog. Pahe Kampu returned to the tribe and at once set about treating them with the new medicine. Needless to say, it worked. Not only did it cure the tribe of the mysterious disease, it served to cure snake bite, malaria, and curses. Indeed, the wonder medicine infused them with the spirit of the frog, a power nobody would have guessed was housed in such a little green body. Combo is something that I found out about, about, uh, I want to say like five years ago. And honestly, there was a time in my life to where I was trying to pursue a lot of different plant and just different spiritual medicines. And 
I actually looked up the training program for combo and uh, that you it's totally legal in the US. So there's like practitioners all over the place. And it was something that I was actually considering pursuing, even though I've actually not tried it before, although it is on my to do list. But it's a really fascinating medicine um, because it is poison. It's poison from the back of a tree frog in the middle of the forest. However, the reaction that it causes in the body is an intense cleansing mechanism. It's extremely physical. So I'm going to read a little bit more. Uh, there's this website that I found called realitysandwich.org. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's literally all about different types of hallucinogens and like their medicinal uses. And it has a lot of different articles linked to it. So seems I've had good a few to of those uh, peanut butter and mushroom sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> that That is a reality that sandwich. A reality yeah. Sandwich. <laughs> exactly what that is. But this is uh, off of their website. So I'm just going to read a little bit more about the frog poison medicine combo. Combo, also known as sapo, is a traditional Amazonian frog medicine derived from the protective secretion of a South American tree frog. For various indigenous groups in the Amazon basin, combo is an ancient shamanic tool used to empower hunting, cure physical ailments, and cleanse negative energies. Since 2010, combo has become popular outside of South America for treating physical, emotional, and spiritual issues. In contrast to many other natural sacred medicines, combo does not produce psychedelic effects. Instead, it has a reputation for being very physically intense, but with the ultimate payoff of a detoxifying, immune-boosting experience after the initial challenging purge. So what does this challenging purge look like? The dried scrapings off of this frog's back basically is the medicine that you're working with and only free roaming frogs living in its natural habitat secrete combo so the frog must be caught in the wild and then released in order to collect the secretion and it takes about a week for them to make another layer of it so they are not being harmed during this process. So a little bit about what that ceremony looks like. Once you have that dried frog secretion, using a sharp knife, the dried sapo, which is the what the secretion is called, it means frog in Spanish and Portuguese, uh, the dried sapo is reconstituted with saliva or water into a paste with the consistency and appearance of wasabi mustard. The combo practitioner then heats up a stick until it is glowing red hot. The smoldering stick is applied to the body, traditionally the upper arm or chest. From here, the top layer of skin is scraped away, leaving a roughly 1 8th inch burn points. Usually between three to five points are made depending on an individual's needs and experience with combo. Although I have read that one is maybe good to just test out your body's reaction to it for your first one. The wetted combo is then dabbed onto the burn sites, completely covering them in a small mound roughly the size of a matchstick head. The burns expose capillaries in the subcutaneous layers of the skin so that the medicine can absorb into the lymphatic system and then come into the bloodstream. The effects begin within seconds, and the combo is wiped away from the arm no later than 15 minutes after the initial application. So in this sense, you're having a trained practitioner who is helping you through this process. This is definitely not something you should attempt to do on your own. Um, yeah, just because something is available doesn't mean you should just start doing it to your friends. Like, definitely it's worth honoring the tradition itself and finding somebody that you can work with and make sure you're safe and do these things the right way. Exactly. Because, I mean, this one in particular involves a lot of vomiting. There is a risk of asphyxiation. So you really set and setting is paramount in, in all of these. Also known as Vacina da Floresta or Vaccine of the Forest. 
Combo is also used as an all-around jungle medicine, helping to treat snake bites, malaria, fevers, and infections. It is traditionally used to treat panema, an indigenous word for dark negative energy. Panema is thought to manifest as depression, stress, trauma, and anger. I think a lot of us can probably feel like, oh man, I've had that panema. Wetiko. Wetiko, for sure. We'll get more into that in the future. Uh, yeah, yeah, we'll <laughs> um, in addition, indigenous women have used combo for reproductive issues and to induce abortions. Children have used small doses of combo when they have gripe or a basic cold. Aptly known as an ordeal medicine or an ordeal poison, as we'll be talking about later, the combo experience can be difficult to navigate, but ultimately rewarding. When properly administered, the effects are felt within 90 seconds. The most unpleasant effects last approximately 30 to 40 minutes. The acute cleansing intoxication phase lasts about 15 minutes and is nearly always characterized by an intense period of purging, vomiting, and also perhaps urination or defecation. So, <laughs> uh, prepare thyself. <laughs> Uh, maybe, you know, fast if you uh, listen to the last episode. Yes, yes. Uh, that is something that, that would be if, a great, you know. <laughs> if you do these sorts of like plant medicines that are very intense, there is always a recommended diet process that goes, it's not diet just to. like you're going to eat McDonald's for lunch and then like go do this at three o'clock. I mean, no. <laughs> I mean, you certainly can. Well, you can. It, uh, it may be. Set yourself up for success. Yes. Yeah, it's going to be challenging as it is. But uh, there are a range of other intense gastrointestinal and cardiovascular effects that occur once the drug is placed on the skin, including increased body temperature and heart rate, sweating, fluctuations in blood temperature, feelings of tingling or burning, uh, shivering, dizziness, perhaps um, facial swelling known as frog face, which is something really common, uh, dissociations, feelings of drunkenness, and I like this last one, animal vocalizations like barking or growling. That's when you know there's some real like the spirit of the jungle is running through you. (laughs) I've been there. Yeah, totally. Um, However, afterwards, What effects can you expect? Well, there's increased stamina, increased vitality, heightened alertness, resistance to stress, increase in physical strength, resistance to hunger and thirst, enhanced focus, and feeling emotionally and or physically cleansed. And the people that I've talked to that have done this have talked about how, you know, if they were working, they just wanted to like work out afterwards and move their bodies and just live life and just had so much vitality afterwards. So to end uh, this little piece on combo, to give you a little bit more of an idea of some of the spiritual effects, this is just a very short clip here from Combo, The Spirit of the Shaman by Professor Marcelo Bolshaw Gomez. Mm. And he says, combo circulates in the heart. Our shaman said that when we take combo, it makes the heart move accurately so that things flow, bringing good things to the person. It is as if there was a cloud on the person preventing the good things to come. Then when it takes the combo, it comes a green light, which opens its ways, making things easier. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it's definitely something that at some point in the future, I'm definitely going to want to try, but <laughs> when the time is right. Well, yeah. That's a great example of a, like you were saying earlier, an ordeal poison, which is kind of the idea that something toxic to you can actually become a medicine if you know how to use it. And we are living in a situation in modern times, I think a lot of people would agree, that there's not only toxins in the food and the environment, but also just in our civilization, in our mm. culture. Energetic and toxins. There is a 
huge call for shadow work. That's the term that is on everyone's lips right now. Everyone's shadow is coming out and we're having to look our demons in the face. And how can we turn our poison into medicine? That's That's what this is all about. And you can do that physically or you can also do that completely independently spiritually with yourself. I think she's got a few more examples of things that you might consider poison but are powerful medicine. Yeah, and we are actually still on the frog theme. Wonderful. (laughs) But this is a different type of frog from a different region. So... (laughs) this is also from reality sandwich i'm just gonna read the title of this article (laughs) what does it mean to milk the frog for psychedelic toad milk oh pervy sage (laughs) for those who watch naruto um yeah (laughs) milking the old frog huh So, DMT milking refers to the method of extracting 5-MeO-DMT from the bufo, meaning toad in Latin. 5-MeO-DMT is a psychoactive substance that naturally occurs in the toad's venom. The only known type of toad that produces 5-MeO-DMT is the bufo alvarius, or the Colorado River toads, found in the Sonoran Desert. These bufos have partsoid glands on their backs that are full of potent psychedelic venom. DMT milking refers to the extraction or milking of the toad's venom from these glands. Then it's dried and turned into raw material for spiritual medicine. The medicine is often taken through inhalation. It has a quick onset and starts working within seconds, lasting for a short duration of about 20 minutes. The actual milk extracted during the DMT milking process is not that strong itself, but when the compound combusts, it becomes 5-MeO-DMT, which is why smoking is common. You won't achieve a spiritual experience by ingesting the venom. So a little bit of alchemy involved here. So it's no wonder people are flocking to the Colorado River to kidnap these toads for their milky white venom. Ever since Mike, I know, <laughs> I know, I know, that's literally what it says. <laughs> Ever since Mike Tyson came out on the Joe Rogan podcast about his revolutionary 5-MeO-DMT experience, it's been the hot new psychedelic. So I'm going to just cut in here a little bit from Forbes.com, which tells you about how uh widespread this information is becoming now. So this is from the article. When former heavyweight boxing champion Mike Tyson first tried 5-MeO-DMT, also called the toad, he said it knocked him off his feet, profoundly changing his life. And this is quoted, but I'm definitely not going to try to do the voice. (laughs) (laughs) No, you got to. no. No, I don't think I could. I don't think I could. I came across this thing called the toad. I smoked this medicine, drug, whatever you want to call it, and I've never been the same. Tyson said on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast last year, viewed by nearly 10 million people. I look at life differently. I look at people differently. It's almost like dying and being reborn. It's inconceivable. I tried to explain it to some people, to my wife. I don't have the words to explain it. It's almost like you're dying, you're submissive, you're humble, you're vulnerable, but you're invincible still in all. One single dose derived from dried venom secreted by the Bufo alvarius toad often produces hallucinogenic boundless experiences within one second of inhalation that can last from seven to 90 minutes and on average last 20 minutes. Like Tyson, people report mystical experiences, many seeing God and often sensing a better understanding of their place and function in the cosmos as a result. Shortly after use, participants tend to be totally clear-headed and 100% back to their previous ordinary state. 
While this material is not currently legal in the U.S., of course, substances with similar molecular structures containing dimethyltryptamine, DMT, like the Amazonian brew ayahuasca, recently have been decriminalized in parts of the United States. This style of medicine is being touted as a healing modality for emotional trauma and used where conventional methods like pharmaceuticals fail. Their ability to heal has prompted voters in Oakland and Santa Cruz in the state of California to opt for decriminalizing a wide range of psychedelics, such as mushrooms, peyote, and ayahuasca, making those items the lowest law enforcement priority. Which is kind of a bummer because peyote is like a totally traditional medicine to many people. And so the fact that like it's even been illegal this long is kind of messed up. But anyway, side note. I mean, you could argue uh, that case for a lot of different plants. These are all things that every human being would agree make up a valuable life experience. She quotes a phrase by Stanislav Grof, the noted Czech psychiatrist with over 60 years of experience in research of non-ordinary states of consciousness, to describe the overall sensation. Experiencing 5-MeO-DMT is this amazing feeling of oceanic bliss, she says. By experiencing this profound connection with the universe and all living beings, one gets the feeling that we're incredibly lucky to have even been birthed on this beautiful planet. So I think that's just like such a beautiful description. Just feeling like, oh my God, I'm just so lucky to be even having this experience. Life is that, wow. It should really, I mean, that's what we've kind of dumbed down the use of the word awesome, but like that's literally what it originally means is to be in awe of something where you're just like, whoa, this is blowing my mind right now. And I like that description of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the one key gift that basically all psychedelics can offer you is even if it's a difficult journey and it might seem terrible like when you come down from that your ego is in check your sense of reality is reshapen and you're far more grateful for everything you have and some of my most challenging journeys have been the most gift giving as far as the things I've learned and the perspective I've gained. Yeah. And I've always kind of heard the difference between 5-MeO DMT and what a lot of people think about now about DMT is uh, 5-MeO is more like merging with the infinite white light of then just pure consciousness and DMT is more of like a circus. It's very visual, very intense, and it's almost like a carnival. Yeah. Well, going on a little bit about the 5-MeO-DMT, this is back to the reality sandwich article, which I feel like I can't say without smiling. What we didn't realize is that Mesoamerican cultures had already discovered 5-MeO-DMT, except they extracted the compound from plants. So while milking the frog for 5-MeO-DMT is actually fairly new, it's a psychedelic compound that's been around for centuries at least. So where can you get this 5-MeO-DMT? It exists in three different ways. There is one, naturally occurring in plants, two, synthetically made in a lab, or three, in the venom of the bufo toads. So there's this next part where Dr. Octavio Rutig says, 5-MeO-DMT is the chemical language used by nature to transmit messages. A person becomes universal or whole when under the influence of 5-MeO-DMT. After the state of being in full totality, he reconfigures back to being himself, but in a more evolved form. Did you say toad-tality? 
<laughs> Zing. Boom. <laughs> Fabledremedies.com. <laughs> yeah. Well, basically what he's talking about is connecting to like your higher self or um, some people might call it like the universal mind, basically back to this source Okay, so one last note about the frogs in particular. There is a section at the end of this article, and it is called Frog Trauma. And we care about the animals here, as well as um, ego-dissolving life experiences. So let's read a little bit about frog trauma. On top of the harm caused by climate change and overdevelopment, both anthropogenic Humans are harvesting these toads from their habitat for their own spiritual gain. The catch and release experience can be quite traumatic for the toads. To trigger the venom excretion, the toads must become agitated. Then the milky venom is extracted by scraping or squeezing. So the toads go through anxiety and then pain. You may think the catch and release of the toads would have only a small impact on their population. However, between the compounded effects of climate change, overdevelopment, and the DMT milking process, the Bufo alvarius is in a bad position for long-term prosperity. So keep that in mind if this is a medicine you are pursuing outside of the United States where it is legal to know your source and to do your own research about the sustainability of the practices that you're choosing. You damn toad milkers. <laughs> I once dated a girl that sister had a bufo toad and she wouldn't let me milk it. <laughs> Is that really, the actual story? That's really, I, was like, <laughs> I was like, can I milk that toad? <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> she was like, no. Did she do that? Is that why she had that toad? No, she just had a pet toad. It but it was like that specific toad? It was really weird because I would like sit there and look into its eyes and there's definitely some like those things seem like they're it's completely in another so dimension at all times. Basically, Hypnotoad from Futurama. Literally, <laughs> just like Hypnotoad from Futurama. <laughs> it's it's really strange. There's this concept that the experience that you have on these psychedelics, whether they be from an animal or a plant or a combination of these things, that the experience you have is a brief glimpse of a consciousness that exists all the time. And that consciousness manifests into this physical dimension as a form. And you might see that as a toad, but that toad is its true identity is the experience that you have when you ingest it or the true identity of ayahuasca is the experience and the spirit you encounter when you ingest it. But on the physical plane, kind of the idea of like, if you believe that you are a soul that have has a body. Yeah, multidimensional spirits, definitely. So to wrap this up, I wanted to talk about one more article before the music break. And this is a great example just to see how the use of things that may be considered venomous or poisonous in various plants or other animals, this use is not unique to us monkeys. So from Smithsonian Magazine, we have the article entitled, Dolphins Seem to Use Toxic Pufferfish to Get High. Mrs. Puff. <laughs> Humans aren't the only creatures that suffer from substance abuse problems. Horses eat hallucinogenic weeds, elephants get drunk on overripe fruit, and bighorn sheep love narcotic lichen. Monkeys' attraction to sugar-rich and ethanol-containing fruit, in fact, may explain our own attraction to alcohol, some researchers think. Now, dolphins may join that list. Footage from a new BBC documentary series, Spy in the Pod, reveals what appears to be dolphins getting high off pufferfish. 
Pufferfish produce a potent defensive chemical which they eject when threatened. In small enough doses, however, the toxin seems to induce a trance-like state in dolphins that come into contact with it, the Daily News reports. The dolphins were filmed gently playing with the puffer, passing it between each other for 20 to 30 minutes at a time, unlike the fish they had caught as prey, which were swiftly torn apart. Zoologist and series producer Rob Piley said that it was the first time dolphins had been filmed behaving this way. At one point, the dolphins are seen floating just underneath the water surface, apparently mesmerized by their own reflections. The dolphins' expert, deliberate handling of the terrorized pufferfish, Piley told the Daily News, implies that this is not their first time at the hallucinogenic rodeo. Wook dolphins. (laughs) Wook dolphins. Hanging out on the dolphin lot. (laughs) $5 a puff. (laughs) No. But I mean, I mean, okay, I don't like how they frame this as like dolphins have addiction problems. I mean, honestly, like this, we have no idea what the dolphin's subjective experience is like. I mean, it could be that they do this and then they're like communicating directly with God. I mean, I don't know, but I don't think we should like demonize these dolphins because they're playing with the fish. I mean, these could be some type of shamanic dolphin ritual for all we know. Exactly. At this point, we've explored, I think, less than one percent of all of the ocean so how we really have no idea what's going on under there so this is yeah. the tip of the iceberg and this is the smithsonian so i mean it's kind of framed through well, yeah exactly this West, is the obviously. like edited version but of reality. what a fun article totally. dolphins getting high hanging out i mean <laughs> can't you can't beat that <laughs> and on a future episode i definitely like to look at the whole Dr. John C. Lilly's acid and dolphin experiments. <laughs> There's a lot to talk about there. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll save that for another time. <laughs> and now we're going to take our music break, and we will see you on the other side. gentlemen, girls and boys of all ages, today we are proud to introduce to you the Fabled Remedies Cryptic Carnival Sideshow. Deep beneath the sand, 
in the wildest pockets of the Gobi Desert, the Mongolian deathworm slumbers through most of the year, only emerging to feed for a few months around June and July. Its native name, Ogoi Korkoi, means the intestine worm, due to its red blood-like color. For starters, these desert monsters are supersized. They can be anything from two feet to 10 feet in length, and they can be as wide as an oak tree. Their skin too is dramatically different from a worm skin. They are plated with a tough red armor that helps them withstand the heat and friction of the desert sand. Their cavernous mouths are lined with hooked teeth that help them drag prey into their throats. Mongolian nomads believe that the giant worm covers its prey with an acidic substance that turns everything a corroded yellow color. Legend says that as the creature begins to attack, it raises half its body out of the sand and starts to inflate until it explodes. Oh my. <laughs> releasing the lethal poison all over the unfortunate victim. The poison is so venomous that the prey dies instantly. Livestock and humans are supposed to be its main prey, but it's unclear exactly how old the legend of the Mongolian deathworm is. Tales of this monstrous worm were first introduced to the Western world by an explorer named Roy Chapman Andrews in his book, On the Trail of Ancient Man, published in 1926. He cited Mongolian Prime Minister Damden Bazaar, who described the worm as being shaped like a sausage about two feet long, has no head nor leg, and it is so poisonous that merely to touch it means instant death. It lives in the most desolate parts of the Gobi Desert." Quote. Andrews worked and collected fossil species for the American Museum of National History and later became the head director but he is primarily known for discovering and scientifically collecting the first dinosaur eggs. Hmm. Although Andrews dismissed the stories of the Mongolian deathworm as folklore, other scientists and explorers were captivated by this sensational creature, and in 1932, he went on to publish this information again in the book The New Conquest of Central Asia, adding, it is reported to live in the most arid sandy regions of the Western Gobi. Also, in the 1987 book by Ivan Mackerel, he cites a Mongolian legend which described the creature as traveling underground, creating waves of sand on the surface which allow it to be detected. It is said it can kill at distance either by spraying a venom at its prey or by means of electric discharge. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It must be a Sith Lord. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it primarily lives in burrows underground, only rarely coming to the surface. There have been many documented expeditions seeking proof of the worm with little results other than eyewitness testimony. But to the locals, this creature is very real. And due to the sheer volume of sightings, strange deaths, and folklore, we ask, could this legendary giant really be stalking the desolate corners of the world's fifth largest desert? Um, I mean, you never know. Honestly, if this is an area that's not highly populated and is extremely remote, they only come out during one particular slice of the year. And if you see them, that means you're probably about to be dead. <laughs> so yeah, it seems it's that they have the. Why, you know, why not? The world, we live in a big place. There would be plenty of places to burrow, but we will leave that conclusion up to you. So that, my friends, was the Cryptic Carnival Sideshow. And as a side note, the Mongolian Deathworm has been the inspiration for several movies and documentaries, like the Tremor series and the sci-fi original movie, Mongolian Deathworm. Oh. If you're looking to get your corny sci-fi fix, and if you're interested, we always encourage you to dive down the rabbit hole for yourself. Just be careful, if you go deep enough, you may run into one of these colossal slumbering crawlers. Dun dun dun!
So before I hand this back over to Lucy to wrap this thing up today, I'm sure some of our listeners may be looking for a little something extra in these troubled times to protect them from the numerous venomous or toxic forces sweeping the land and haunting our lives today. Whether it be your slave labor 9 to 5 or a sleep paralysis causing Casper in your closet, this could be just the golden ticket you need to kick those energy vampires to the curb. So now let's take a look at the fifth pinnacle of Mars from the Key of Solomon the King. That is the King Solomon of the Bible, the son of David, and this information is attributed to him, but the only source material that we have comes much later and there's no really historical evidence to tie this to the King Solomon. But this information is mostly taken from the Samuel Liddell McGregor Mathers translation, who was a master Freemason and one of the three founding members of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which was an occult group founded in 1887 that we will definitely be discussing throughout many different themes in upcoming shows, but for now I just wanted to focus on this one talisman. We could have a whole series of podcasts just trying to describe what a talisman is and the difference between talismans and amulets and how to channel and invoke planetary energies and there's corresponding days and hours and there's demons and angels and the different metals and colors and incense and there's such a deep rabbit hole of information to dive down if you want to get into the true art of crafting talismans. But for today, we're just going to keep it simple. A talisman traditionally would be thought to be a object that would be crafted in a way to encapsulate a certain type of cosmic energy or planetary influence. This is a lot of times done just on paper or crafted into different types of metal. But for today we're just going to look at this one talisman. It is the key figure 29, the fifth pinnacle of Mars, and it is depicted as a circle that contains within it a scorpion, and around it is written in Hebrew the word breath. But here it takes on the meaning of terror, as the evil forces are terrorized by the side of the seal. This seal is also recommended for soldiers and warriors as it strengthens the spirit and protects against all enemy weapons. Samuel's translation reads, Write thou this pinnacle upon virgin parchment or paper, because it is terrible unto the demons, and at its sight and aspect they will obey thee, for they cannot resist its presence. The versicle on the seal is from the Psalm 91.13. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and asp, the young lion and the serpent shalt thou trample under your feet. Mm, interesting symbols there. And this can be used as an invocation for the seal or another option commonly used is Mark chapter 16.15-18 which reads... Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. Which, isn't that the verse that has sort of inspired some churches to have actual snakes in their services? Oh, yeah, big time. Yeah, which I... <laughs> which we don't recommend at all. Don't recommend. Even if you speak parcel tongue and <laughs> you're a member of Slytherin House, <laughs> not recommended. Uh, but it, it does talk about the power of healing. But if that's something that you wow. find yourself doing, then this may be the seal for you. Exactly. <laughs> and on that note, I just thought this would be an interesting solution to the overarching spirit of today's episode. 
And if you find that you are interested in this talisman, you can go to our website, and I have made a sticker and a poster of my own artwork and version of this seal that you can purchase and you'll support the podcast and hopefully it'll be just the extra bit of magic you need to keep those parasitic archons at bay. (laughs) (laughs) And just as a little disclaimer before I hand this back over to Lucy to wrap it up, I just want to say that ritual magic isn't really for dabblers and I'm not trying to do this in any disrespectful way at all. This is something that if you're serious about it and it interests you, it's worth, even if you buy one of my seals, to look up the planetary hour and day and find a time that you can meditate and try to put your own energy and influence into the piece and connect with it so it can be something that's personal to your situation. Go ahead and make your own version. It doesn't have to look good. You don't have to be an artist. Get out a blank piece of paper with a pen write out a version of the seal and put it in your wallet and carry it with you. And it's like, honestly, so much of this type of thing is about your intention. It's about your focused consciousness on the intent of staving off these evil forces, whatever that may mean. Absolutely. And just the art of talismanic magic is uh, something that you could spend a lifetime journeying. And it's really interesting. Don't be afraid. Even if you're one of these Christian people out here, they get turned off by anything occult. Like if you look at these phrases, all this stuff is taken mostly from the archangels. And these are biblical phrases. Don't be afraid to de-occult the occult. So a lot of what we've been talking about today has been using poison as medicine or challenges as growth. There's one book that I found recently that I think really perfectly encapsulates that idea, and it is called What's in the Way is the Way. This book is by Mary O'Malley, who is an author, counselor, and acknowledged leader in the field of spiritual awakening. Her work focuses on curiosity, compassion, trust, and the ability to be with whatever is showing up in our lives in a spacious and attentive way. One metaphor that she uses throughout this book that I really resonate with is the concept that when we are all born as humans, that we are born into this magical meadow where everything is perfect, everything is beautiful, it's all whole, connected, loving presence. And throughout our lives, especially in our early childhood, we develop these different stories that are based on fear through experiences of trauma or just challenge that we may have had, disconnection, whatever, in our lives. And these stories start to form clouds that start just really wispy at first, and then they grow to be a thick storm around our head, basically around our body. So that is all that we see. Our entire perception is these clouds. The cloud. What? Well, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> So, but in the book, she talks about how we all have this innate knowledge and remembrance, sort of intuitive knowledge of the meadow that we are from and that we at some level, whether consciously or subconsciously, yearn to get back to this feeling of okayness, of peace, of presence. And yet here we are looking for solutions within the cloud of our fears, of our stories that we have developed over our lives. And so we run around here and there, still caught in the cloud, unable to see anything else, while the whole time we have been in the meadow all along. So that is going to set up this piece that I'm going to read from the book So you have a little bit of an understanding for the context of the sort of like imagery and allegories that she makes. 
Also, another thing that I love about her writing style is that she only goes, because she's talking about very intense, deep, like real subjects, every couple of paragraphs, she includes breaks, sort of like moments to check in with yourself with this present moment of reality to step outside of whatever thought loops may be forming your head and to drop into the moment. So there's a section that I want to read here that has a few of those pieces included. And I think it really makes the read more of an experience. So here is she is talking about the experience of being poisoned by fear and how to move through that. Because spiritually, and in many other aspects of health, fear really is a poison, psychologically, certainly. The reason we may not be fully aware of all this fear happening inside of us is that we have been conditioned to run away from it as fast as we can. This conditioning is why we are such a compulsive society. We are so deeply afraid of our fear, our anger, and the despair they generate that we create elaborate systems for not seeing them. In order to avoid uncomfortable experiences, we turn to food, drugs, alcohol, busyness, to-do lists, internet, television, shopping, and other distractions to keep ourselves numb. We even use meditation to achieve a state we want and to get rid of the states we don't. We distract ourselves with astonishing fervor. Even though distraction may bring us temporary relief, it does not heal this underlying movement of fear. Take a moment to dip the finger of your attention into the river of your experience. See it, hear it, fully experience it. This moment is different from any other moment of your life. In this moment of purely noticing life, there is no fear. With the above pause, you lifted your attention out of fear-based mind and used it to notice life. The storyteller might have resisted doing this altogether, which is the voice in your head. Or after a moment or two of pure connection, it might have pulled your attention right back into the world of time, for fear needs time to exist. It needs stories of past and future in order to get a foothold on your mind. Every moment you let go of relating to life through fear and instead open to life truly makes a difference, even if it happens for just one second. What counts even more is being able to see the fear that clouds your direct experience with life. In order to see fear more clearly, it is helpful to recognize that fear affects your body as well as your mind. Watch yourself the next time you are suddenly startled or somebody judges you, and you will see your body tightening. Fear shows up in your body as a tension headache, trouble with your jaw, frozen shoulders, difficulty breathing, a stiff neck, stomach problems, a backache, and other physical problems. Many of your physical difficulties and illnesses are fueled by the contraction of fear, which constricts the healthy flow and functioning of your body. You are also conditioned to try to get away from your fear by numbing yourself through compulsions, and most of them also wreak havoc in your body. When you live in fear-based stories, you react to life. When you live from the meadow of your well-being, you respond to life. In the meadow, you relax, you are open and available to life. When you are identified with the stories of fear, however, you become tight. 
You resist, react, manipulate. Take a moment and be honest with yourself about how much you live in reaction. Many times you react to little things your friends and loved ones say and create drama in your world. Drama that is all based on fear. Remember that commercial where the wife asked the husband whether her jeans make her look fat? She fears he will say she looks fat and he fears not saying the right thing. This is how so many people live their relationships. Fear prevents an authentic and truly intimate relationship with yourself and with others. Fear causes you to contract rather than to open, to protect rather than connect, to resist rather than respond, to survive rather than to thrive. Fear constantly makes demands and you have spent your life trying to meet them. You don't have to live your life with fear in charge. It is possible to come out of the trance of fear and live from the aliveness, openness, and joy of the meadow. Can you feel the relief of that truth? Take a moment to dip the finger of your attention into the river of sensations that is your body. Are you holding tension in one shoulder or maybe both? Are the muscles right above the pubic bone being tightly held? Is your brow furrowed or possibly your jaw clenched? Whatever tension you notice, invite it to let go. The way out. Whatever your storyteller does to attempt to get rid of fear only causes more fear. So the way out of fear is to get to know it through your heart. It is possible to become honest enough with yourself to be able to start looking at what is going on inside of you. And in looking, you become free. As soon as you become aware of the stories of fear you crawled into, you can begin to see through them and return to the meadow of well-being within you. The renowned writer and speaker Krishnamurti said in a talk in Paris in 1969, It is not that you must be free from fear. The moment you try to free yourself from fear, you create resistance against fear. Resistance in any form does not end fear. One must understand the whole nature and structure of fear. That means learn about it. Watch it. Come directly into contact with it. We are to learn about fear, not how to escape from it, not how to resist it. You don't need to be afraid of looking at fear. In order to discover the courage to look at your fears, it is important to know that even when you are caught in fear, this is happening within a greater space in you that is not afraid. End quote. This meadow of well-being has always been with you. It is within you right now, even as you are reading this book, and it is absolutely okay with whatever is happening. It is also important to know that our fear doesn't want us to be afraid of it. Instead, it wants to be seen, to be welcomed, to be touched by our hearts so it doesn't have to be afraid anymore. Or, as poet Rainer Maria Rilke says in Letters to a Young Poet, perhaps everything that frightens us is, in its deepest essence, something helpless that wants our love. You can discover how to bring accepting attention to fear. In fact, your fears have been waiting for you to be present with them your whole life. Check in with your body again and see if the place that you invited to let go a few minutes back is holding again. Understand it is fear that causes your body to contract. Open to one deep breath and invite this area to let go. Even if it tightens again, 
this moment of letting go matters. So I just love that piece because it talks about the way to deal with all of these challenging things that happen in our life is not to run away from them, but it's to run towards them with compassion, with heart-centered attention. And then these things will pass through you and yes, you will feel it, but that is the point. And there's really only one way to change the world and that is to do the work. Let's make 2022 a year we're all proud of and we can definitely get this train back on the tracks. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Fabled Remedies. Go to fabledremedies.com. Share this podcast with the people that you love. Make sure to follow us and send any of your stories, whether they're paranormal, weird, or just cool, to fabledremedies at gmail. And we will see you next time. Till then, many blessings. Many blessings.